This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's time for Tuesday Terror here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. QuietPlease.org presents Quiet, Please, which is written by and features Paul Nero. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Living Death. You may open the blinds. We have contacted the Governor, the Chief Justice, and the Attorney General's office. No appeals are pending, and no motions have been filed to set aside the warrant of death sentence and execution in the matter of the State versus Leopold Evans. You may therefore proceed to carry out the order of the court. Leopold Evans, you have been convicted of the crime of first-degree murder. You have been sentenced to death by lethal injection for your crime. This is the time and place for the execution of that sentence. If you have any last words, now is the time. The, the only person I could have been argued to have murdered is myself. And I plead involuntary manslaughter on that count. Hold his arm. We will return in half an hour to confirm the completion of the sentence. You've never been alone. You've been in empty rooms, empty homes, 
You've been rejected. But you've never been alone like this. Alone after all your appeals have fallen on deaf ears. Alone after a jury of your peers and society as a whole has rejected you. And as embodied by officers of the state, they've calmly injected a cocktail of poisons into your arm and walked out to wait for you to die. Alone as you look through the open blinds and realize you have no loved ones watching you and not even any enemies who care enough to see you off. Alone like a stray dog being euthanized after going unclaimed at the shelter. Why did they leave? Don't they have the courage to watch what they're doing to me? Or is it just one final snub? Their way of saying I don't matter enough to even watch die. My final convulsions will be as solitary and futile as the rest of the life. By denying me this last chance to connect with my fellow man, they deny my life any last chance of meaning. But are they the ones who've done this? Or am I? I can't remember. I should be feeling something by now. My limbs should be heavy. I should be falling asleep. But I feel, perhaps, better now than I've ever felt. A low bar, to be sure. Maybe it's the lifting of a great burden. The relief of suddenly having no future to worry about. I don't have to worry about bills. I don't have to worry about retirement or losing weight or whether my team wins tomorrow or what I'm going to have for dinner or or absolutely anything beyond the next few minutes. Best of all, I don't have to worry about dealing with people and all the awkward humiliations that come with that. There are no more people in the remainder of my life. I should be feeling something by now. Something's gone wrong. Wrong for them, right for me. I feel stronger than I ever have as if the cocktail of poisons were adrenaline. I pull the IV out of my arm, sit up and push my way through the careless of those straps I've been bound with, and then on pure instinct I run for the door and fling it open and barrel down the empty hallway like a startled deer. It's impossible. It's absurd. I'm alive. I'm free. Well, no, not free. Never free. Always on the run. Always hiding myself. Always have been. Even when I didn't know what I was running from or why. That's been the story of my life. Always running. Never finding the courage to face my fears, 
and forge connections and set down roots. It's a prison of sorts, a prison of the mind that masquerades as freedom at a cursory glance. I hear you, brother. You're lonely, too. We're pack animals without a pack. But we'll never meet, because neither of us has the courage. If we ever did meet, we'd turn away from each other and run. That sound. That, that sound. It takes me back to that other time. Hey, you, you can't sleep in the storage room. Did, did you hear me? Let, me? let me get a light on here. And what did you see the defendant do as he stood over the body? He stood over her, and he just stared into her eyes at first, for minutes. On realizing she was dead, I grew calmer. There was no longer any threat of confrontation. I walked over and stood over the body. I, I looked into her wide-open eyes, and I, I marveled at how easy it was. Never before had I looked into someone's eyes without feeling my stomach lurch. Never before had I, had I maintained eye contact for so long. And then he grabbed one of her hands just and just held it for a while, while the blood dripped onto him. There was no doubt in my mind that the woman was dead. The formalities must be observed. So, I extended two fingers to her throat to, to check for a pulse. I found none, but I did find a curious sensation in myself when I made contact with her skin. Following uh, compulsion within, I reached out to gently touch one of her hands. There was no recoil, no look of disgust, no scream. I held her dead hand, and for the first time in my life, I felt unconditionally accepted. Would you say the defendant showed any signs of distress or concern? No. He was calmer than any other time I've seen him. He was acting like everything was going according to plan. At any point, did the accused call for help or make any motion for help? No, he did not. It was a profound experience. In those short minutes, seeing the end to which we all come, 
life began to make sense for me. I felt the life blood of what had been a fellow human being drip onto my hand as it held hers, and it bonded us as nothing in life could. Death is the great equalizer, the one thing that brought her to a level I could relate to. Whoever she was in life, however intimidating she would have been, now she was an equal. And that's why I behaved as the witness describes. No further questions. No further questions. You couldn't have made a stronger case against yourself, Leopold. Jeez, I should have known it was a mistake to let you testify. So I was condemned. So I was taken to my place of execution. Yet somehow I find myself in this forest. No, not blood. Just water. It's beginning to rain. There was another rainy day, so long ago. It was the first school day of the new year, and I'd made a resolution over the break to start talking to the other kids, to reach out in the new year and let them in. It was all so simple in my head. I would take it slowly, step by step. Speaking one word would suffice the first day, then ten, then maybe thirty words a day. And before long, I'd have friends to justify the efforts. The plan lasted until recess. I was walking the loop around the school grounds, in the open despite a light rain. I was trying to look like I was going somewhere, as always. A boy I'd never seen before approached. Do you know what time it is? 10.25. Did you hear that? I made Leo talk! Told you I could! And every gaze on the playground turned to me and bored through me as if with x-ray vision. I could feel myself turning beet red and shrinking to a point. I can still feel it. Then I made a new resolution. A resolution to grow a thicker shell and never be exposed again. I would grow a shell so thick that even I could never break through it. Dogs. At least the rain will mask my scent. I'm almost glad for the dogs. The dogs are an acknowledgement. They've noticed my absence, and it makes a difference to them. I matter. Now I have something to do again. A purpose. To run from the dogs. I like dogs when they're not chasing me with the intent to bring me to my death. They love without reason. They bond with the unworthy. I've always admired that. I remember when I was little, around four years old, I think, I saw a litter of free puppies advertised on the corner. I 
begged my parents to let me take one home. No, Leo. A puppy would make such a mess. Leo, you can't be responsible for a life. We each must master ourselves before we can take on another. I never mastered myself, so I never took on another. I'm quite tired. My legs have grown heavy. Seems death row doesn't get you in shape to run for your life. Stumbling, I trip over a log and plant my face into a muddy puddle. It doesn't hurt. It feels rather good, actually. I lie there and I feel the mud envelop me like a womb. Like a womb, the one place in this universe where there's a sense of complete security and peace, where the view every day is the same, and all material needs are met without effort. Right now, I feel like I can remember being there, being content that I had surveyed and understood the entirety of the very small universe. I could feel connected to something beyond myself, to everything beyond myself. And then I'm forcibly expelled, pushed from that comfort into a bizarre, overwhelming world of lights and sounds, and the clamor of so many people, never to return. And for the first of many times, I scream. Time of pronouncement is 12.37. Thank you. You may now close the blinds. The title of tonight's Quiet Please story was The Living Death. It was written and directed by Paul Narum, and the man who spoke to you was Paul Narum. Virginia Hargrove played the officer, the prosecutor, and the mother. Brian Hunt was the corrections secretary. Lindsay Townsend was the witness. Gary Wallen was the father. Matt Alice was the defense attorney and the boy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Music courtesy freesound.org and freepd.com. The theme for Quiet Please is taken from the second movement of Cesar Franck's Symphony in D minor, as played by the Philharmonia Orchestra at Watford Town Hall in June 1959. This program is licensed for free reuse and redistribution.
Children of the night, I'm trying to read. Renfield, enter. Count Dracula. I found an especially juicy dinner for you, master. It's not a puppy this time, is it? No, master. I promised I had learned my lesson. <laughs> I know you did, and you've been steadfast ever since. I apologize for doubting you. Please, put it over there. Master, if I may ask, why didn't you go out hunting tonight? Why did you request takeout? It's because I'm reading a very excellent book that I just can't put down. It is quite the page-turner, as I believe the children today say. It's called Gothic Meditations at Midnight by Dr. Stephen Edred Flowers. Gothic Meditations at Midnight? Is it a forbidden grimoire of unholy rites? <laughs> no, Renfield. As its subtitle states, it contains esoteric commentaries on classic horror literature and film from the year 1919, which for me was a very good year, to 1975. I don't understand, Master. Dr. Flowers is a scholar who is also a lover of horror films and literature. And he was a monster kid. You always said children were the most tasty. <laughs> Focus, Renfield. I am not drinking Dr. Flowers. I would rather consume his tasty books, like this one. Gothic Meditations at Midnight. Yes, Renfield. Gothic Meditations at Midnight. In it, he provides commentaries on his thoughts and, well... Meditations. Meditations on film and literature through the lenses of the historical Gothic, from the Gothic tribes to the later artistic movement of that same name. He meditates on various esoteric and occult aspects, and with plenty of sinister fun. He even starts with an essay on me. Excellent, Master. What else did he meditate on? Plenty. There are chapters on the mummy, the wolfman, the phantom of the opera, Dr. Frankenstein and his creature, the nihilistic cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft, the psychologically interior horror of Edgar Allan Poe, a unique exploration of zombies, the horror films of German Expressionism, and quite a bit more. Each essay explores information and interpretations that are deep and dark, wondrous and mysterious, with a distinct synthesis of the scholarly and the personal. It sounds wonderful, Master. I will leave you to your book and your meal. <laughs> Thank you, Renfield. Out of curiosity, who did you capture for my dinner? An especially pompous professional film and literature critic. <laughs> Most serendipitous, Renfield. Most serendipitous indeed. Critics. And people think vampires are parasites. Ha! Gothic Meditations at Midnight by Dr. Stephen Edred Flowers is available at SeekTheMysteries.com That's S-E-E-K-T-H-E-M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-E-S dot -E 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 com 
or at your favorite online or brick and mortar bookstore. <laughs>